0: So I learned something this week that I had not known before. Uh, so let me put the image up on the screen, and you tell me what you notice about this watch. Anything? Got it's got a face. It's not digital, right? But, but here's what I learned, that most ads for non-digital watches have the time set to 10-10. Here's why. It's so we think of a smiling face. See, advertisers know we're more likely to buy something that looks happy. Capitalizing on our inherent dissatisfaction, the worldwide marketing machine spends approximately 250 billion dollars annually to make us unhappy with, well, with who we are, unhappy with what we have, unhappy with how we look, and unhappy with what we do. At its core, most advertising is designed to make us feel ungrateful about what we have and to feed our greed for that which we don't have. In the 1970s, the average person viewed between 500 to 500 to 1,600 ads per day. In the year 2000, an individual was exposed to somewhere near 5,000 ads every day. Well, with the explosion of the internet and social media, studies now estimate that you and I are exposed to up to 10,000 ads every day. And we're being sold stuff all the time And actually, it's not all that difficult to do because most of us are already dissatisfied due to our default setting of discontentment. One researcher summarized his findings this way. Consumers encounter countless advertising images during the course of everyday life. Many of these images are idealized, representing life more as it is imagined than it actually exists. Get this. Repeated exposure to idealized images raises consumers' expectations and influences their perceptions of how their lives ought to be, particularly in terms of their material possessions. The result of both of these processes for some consumers is discontent and an increased desire for more. In other words, Advertising simply capitalizes on our coveting hearts. In a post called How to Motivate Your Prospects, I learned some inside information. This is what ads are designed to do, quote, as an advertiser, it's your job to create discontentment inside the psyche of your prospects and make them desire the change that you're offering. One commentator offers this insight while admitting a disregard for the 10th commandment. Check this. Because producers covet, that's the word we're going to see in commandment number 10, because producers covet consumers' money, they need to get consumers to covet their goods. After listening to the sermon last night, Edgewood member Cajun Pauley, he and his wife Lynn um, are from the Alito area. Cajun pastored in Alito uh, for many years. They're now members here. They were here at the service last night. He sent me an email this morning, and I asked for permission to read part of it. Here's what he writes Does the sum total of our purchases actually produce happiness? We're assured by the marketing teams of the titans of industry that if only we will use this or that product, our lives will be enhanced, we'll be popular, we'll gain peace of mind, we'll even bring our families and communities closer together. But does it actually work? Cajun writes, "...every year since 1945, studies have been made and polls conducted to determine whether Americans are happy or not, and the results have been fascinating. Apparently, our satisfaction peaked as a country somewhere around the 1950s and has continuously declined ever since." That's right. In spite of the fact that our material abundance has exponentially grown, our spirits have steadily flagged. And then he writes this. We have conducted a large-scale, long-term experiment to determine if riches bring happiness and then completely ignored the obvious answer that they do not. Now, Some advertising is altruistic. It's good. It's fine. But it's fair to say most advertising strives to influence us to spend money we do not have on things we do not need. I'm reminded of something Will Rogers often said, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't even like. (laughs) Now, in contrast... To our culture of coveting, the 10th commandment dispels the myth of more. Here's our main idea. The key to not coveting what others have is to be content with what you already have. So let's review the summary statements we've been using to help us remember the ten commandments. Say these along with me. One God, no idols, revere his name, remember to rest, honor parents, no murder, no adultery, no stealing, no lying, and no coveting. We're going to finish this series that we've been calling Written in Stone next weekend with a message entitled, Christ and the Commandments. Now, in honor of God's word, if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to read this commandment together. We're going to slow the pace a bit so that we can take this commandment in, and let me remind you before we read it that this is God's inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word. Let's read verse 17 together. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. All right, you can be seated. God, now, uh, would you guide us as we study, as we interpret, as we make observations, and then by your Spirit, take your living and active word and apply it even in those dark recesses of our hearts. Uh, Lord, change us uh, for your glory and your honor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the Hebrew word covet, well, it's used both positively and negatively. So the positive meaning is this. It's a strong desire or delight. The negative use means an excessively strong desire to have something that belongs to someone else. In addition, it means to grasp for more. This inordinate, ungoverned, selfish desire, it's so strong that it compels someone to violate another person's property. One pastor conveys coveting this way in overt dissatisfaction and discontent with what God has provided and a longing desire for what he has forbidden. Now, whether a desire is good or not depends on the object of that desire. Let's look first at good desires. The positive use of the word covet is found in Genesis 2.9. It's used to describe the trees in the Garden of Eden as delightful, as pleasant to the sight. Psalm 19.10 says God's word is more to be desired than gold. Some of us use this word in a positive sense. Oh, let me paint a picture. Imagine that you're having surgery next week and you're nervous about it. And you're talking to a fellow Christ follower and you'd like them to pray for you. And so instead of saying, hey, if you think about it, would you pray for me? You might say something like this. I really covet your prayers. What that means is you, like, seriously are in need of prayer. You strongly desire them to pray for you. So that would be good desires. How about bad desires? The negative use of this word is found one chapter later, Genesis 3, verse 6. So now Eve looks at the tree, and she finds it to be desired. And she covets what she's not supposed to have. Proverbs twenty one, twenty-five, and twenty-six, vivid picture. Check this out. The desire of the sluggard kills him. All day long he craves and craves. So it's like someone say, What'd you do today? I craved and I craved. What'd you do yesterday? I just sit around and I crave and I crave. Joshua 7.21, Achan craved what he wasn't supposed to have, and when he got it, well, he hid it from others. He buried it in the ground. What is it that he coveted? Well, we hear his own words. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, that's Babylon, and, so beautiful clothing, secondly, 200 shekels of silver, And a bar of gold weighing five shekels, then I, listen to the word he used, I coveted them and took them. And sadly, because he coveted, he brought defeat to the nation, and he brought death to himself and to his whole family. Well, think of some other examples. Ahab coveted Naboth's vineyard, ends up murdering him so he could take the vineyard. David coveted Bathsheba, which led to his sin of adultery, and then he knocks off her husband, the sin of murder. Judas had a covetous heart, and he ended up betraying Christ. So the key to not coveting what others have, well, it's to be content with what you already have. Well, let's consider some of the characteristics of coveting. You might want to buckle up. We're in for a rough ride. Number one, coveting hits close to home. Would you observe three times the word neighbor is in this one verse? It shows how we're related to others in community. So we seldom covet those things far from us. But if it's someone close to us that has something that we don't have, well, it becomes a problem. Those things become alluring and enticing. A year and a half ago, we traded in our 12-year-old minivan for a Honda Pilot. And we decided to get the basic trim model, kind of the entry level. Very few bells and whistles. We love this vehicle. We love everything about it. Until... Two weeks ago, we're having dinner, and where I was seated in our dining room, I could look out into the neighborhood. Beth was seated to my left, and so as I'm looking out, our neighbors pull out of the garage with a brand new, or it's newer, Honda Pilot, And it had all the bells and whistles on it. Now, Beth could not tell what I was looking at. She's looking at my face, and she goes, what are you looking at? So I said these words. I said, I'm really happy for our neighbors, but I'm not coveting. (laughs) And, And Beth says, I never asked if you were coveting. Well, sometime after that, I circled back to that conversation, and I said, hey, Beth, I was coveting. Number two, coveting is strictly forbidden. Oh, would you observe twice in this verse? You shall not, you shall not. It's a double negation. If you read the other nine commandments, you won't see that in there. There's a lot of thou shalt not, right? But it's used one time in each command here. It's used twice. Why? Well, I think I know why because of how much I struggle not to covet. He repeats it twice to reinforce its importance. Kevin DeYoung says, this is no sweet, safe little sin. I mean, this is underscored in Ephesians 5, verse 3. Paul is writing to a church, a church just like us. He's writing to Christians. He says these words, covetousness, must not even be named among you. Covetousness shouldn't even be named among Christians as is proper among the saints. Number three, the command against coveting is very specific. Observe that there are three detailed categories which detail all that a neighbor could have and all that we might want. Notice first, property, that word for house can refer to a neighbor's dwelling, it can refer to what's inside, the furnishings, and it can refer to the land surrounding it. When these commands were repeated 40 years later in Deuteronomy chapter 5, we're also told to not covet his field, our neighbor's field. Micah 2, 2 says they covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. So let's bring that to where we live. That means we shouldn't covet our neighbor's lawn or their landscaping. Secondly, people. The verse continues, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant. If we go back to the second giving of the law, same verse, Deuteronomy 5, verse 21, we discover that the prohibition against coveting your neighbor's wife now gets moved up to the top. That's the number one thing to not covet. Listen to how careful Job is to make sure he's not coveting his neighbor's wife, Job thirty-one nine: if my heart has been enticed toward a woman and I've lain in wait at my neighbor's Door. Third category possessions an ox was trained to work the fields was a major part of a person's wealth. An ox was one of the specified animals for sacrifice. Oxen were thought of so highly they were often representative of the twelve tribes of Israel. A donkey. Well, the donkey was considered unclean, but it was also very valuable. It was used for transportation and the tilling of the ground. So check this. In the event that our coveting doesn't hit one of these three categories and we're looking for a loophole, uh, there isn't one. But Do you see it there? Or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, most of us don't covet oxen and donkeys, but we do crave bigger houses, nicer cars, and newer toys. It's funny, after the first service, somebody came up to me and she's kind of had her head down. She goes, I do covet oxen and donkeys. (laughs) So, (laughs) she lives on a farm, so. Number four, this command is unique. To my knowledge, there is nothing like this command in any other group of people, any other civilization in history, any other code of laws, nothing like it. And I don't know of any laws on the books today that criminalize coveting. It's a good thing because if there were, we'd all be in jail. Number five, coveting is an invisible sin. So with the 10th command, we move from actions to the realm of attitude. The other commandments, except for the first, well, they deal with deeds, while the last one, commandment 10, depicts our desires. This sin is hard to spot in others. I don't know if you're coveting right now or not, and you don't know if I'm coveting right now or not. It's invisible. It's on the inside. It deals with the internal, not the external, because it's directed at what we want to have. Philip Ryken writes this, If God had not given us the Tenth Commandment, we might be tempted to think that outward obedience is all we need to offer. Francis Schaeffer once said, Thou shalt not covet is the internal commandment, which shows the man who thinks himself to be moral that he really needs a Savior. Number six, The prohibition against coveting may be the most often broken commandment. I mean, I can't prove that, but... We have a clue to that. The Apostle Paul had a problem with coveting. Listen to what he writes, Romans 7, 7 and 8. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Then he writes this. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. This is the Apostle Paul. Number seven, coveting is the root of all other sins. At the root of every sin is the belief that God somehow has not given us everything we think we need. Listen to Colossians 3 5. We're told to put to death what is earthly in you. Covetousness, comma, which is idolatry. Do you think of coveting as idolatry? God does. Shay Lin writes this whenever we break the tenth commandment, we're also breaking the first commandment. If God were to judge you based on this one command alone, is there anyone who would feel confident standing before a holy God? Number eight, coveting comes with a warning. So when you sense coveting rising up within you, watch out. Watch out. James 4.2 says you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet, and you cannot obtain it, so you want something desperately, but you can't have it, so what do you do? James says you fight and you quarrel. Listen, sinful deeds start with sinful desires. Ken Trevett shares about a Philadelphia woman. She died in 1930, and she didn't have a will. Her estate was worth $17 million. And even though she had only one known relative and less than a dozen friends, here's what happened. More than 26,000 people from 47 states and 29 foreign countries tried to claim her estate. And in their fight for money, these coveting imposters committed perjury. They faked family records. Some of them changed their own names. They even altered data in family Bibles. As a result, 12 were arrested. Ten received jail sentences. Two committed suicide. Three were murdered. Listen, coveting can quickly consume us. Once Jesus was asked to tell a man's brother to divide up their inheritance, and they were probably in odds with each other. So the guy's like, hey, Jesus, could you fix this and give me more than my brother? He's probably thinking. Well, listen to this, verse 14, to set it up. But Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, listen to these words, take care and be on your guard against what? All covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them a parable about a rich man who tore down his barn. And take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. Listen, lock in. Jesus strongly contradicts the values of our coveting culture. If you have a covetous character, no matter what you have, it will never be enough. It'll never be enough. Your stuff will never satisfy. You'll need more stuff. Something different, something new, or something bigger. Your relationships He or she gets old, not as pretty or handsome as they were. Just get another one. That person no longer makes you happy. Well, isn't that why they're there to make me happy? Listen, you will always want something you don't have if you have a covetous heart. I appreciate the perspective of one pastor. We in America have had more materially than all the rest of the world, and yet it has not made us more contented, but only more covetous. So if you find yourself saying or thinking these words, let's personalize it. If only I had... Fill in the blank. What's in your blank? If only I had... Uh, You probably know what that is because you've spent some time thinking about it. If I had that, well, then I'd be happy. Well, You may think if you had a better job, a better family, a better phone, a better church, a better car, a husband or a better one, a wife or a better one, more kids, less kids, or a better sports team to cheer on, cheer for. I can help you with that, by the way. Well, then you'd be happy. Listen, get this, lock in. If you've been drifting, come back. Hope you had a nice trip, but come back (laughs) because I don't want you to miss this for real. This is it right here. If you are not satisfied with what you have now, you won't be satisfied should you get what you're wishing you had. See, the key to not coveting what others have is to be content with what you already have. Well, let's get a little more personal. Here's some clues to see if you have a coveting attitude. You could answer these questions as honestly as you're brave enough to. Number one, you may have a coveting attitude if you do a lot of grumbling and a lot of complaining. You may have a coveting attitude. Number two, if you become envious of what other people have. Number three, when you have a preoccupation with your possessions, you think a lot about them. You go to bed thinking of them. You wake up thinking of them. And when you're not thinking of them, you're thinking of the next possession that you're going to get. Number four, when you become stingy with what God has given you. Number five, When God is just getting your leftovers, if there's anything left over to give. Number six, when you love things and use people rather than using things and loving people. I heard about a man who was tired of his friends owning nicer homes than his. And so he went to see a realtor. He put his home on the market. He began searching for a new home. Well, one day in his search, he came across a listing for a home that checked all the boxes. He excitedly called his realtor and said he wanted to schedule a walkthrough, to which the realtor replied, Sir, that's the home you already live in. (laughs) Ouch. So the cure for coveting is to learn the secret of contentment. Well, that's found in Philippians chapter 4. Feel free to turn there. Chapter 4 of Philippians, verse 11. Apostle Paul writing, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be, what? Content. Well, that should get our attention. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. (laughs) Observe. Even the apostle Paul had to be taught how to be content. That word secret means to be initiated. And once you learn the secret, well, you'll join a very small club called the Contentment Club. And Paul chose to be content in any and every circumstance, whether he had a lot or he had a little. That's a sweeping statement. It means it covers every condition of life. And that phrase, have learned, means to discover by experience, to enter into a new condition. Beth and I enjoyed watching the latest season of a show called Alone. This show, season seven, took place in the Arctic, Well, here's how the show works. Uh, The show tests survival (laughs) instincts of different people, and they go to the Arctic by themselves with nobody else. That's why it's called alone, with no food and no shelter. And they have to survive. They have to find their own food. They all carry cameras, and then they put that all together, and that becomes the show Alone. So, on season seven, the incentive was anybody who lasts 100 days in the Arctic would get $1 million. The beginning of the show, they're all eager. They're all talking about the $1 million. As the show goes on, one of the guys, I'm not going to give a spoiler alert, one of the guys is really struggling with the horrible weather. I think he's suffering from frostbite. He's got lack of food. And he starts missing his family. He starts talking about his family. So he finally taps out. He says, I'm done. And as he contemplated missing out on a million dollars, as he thinks about his family back home, he said this phrase, I realized everything I want, I already have. He's looking at a million dollars. He goes, no, what I want is right there. He packed up, called in, helicopter picked him up. He went back to his family. So question, how can you become satisfied in every situation so you can say that phrase, everything I want, I already have? Now, you might want to lean forward to hear this. I mean, the Apostle Paul calls it a secret. Here's the secret. God has so ordered the world and your personal circumstances that no matter what situation you are in right now, you have everything you truly need to be content. It's a myth that you always need more. Philip Ryken writes this, contentment is the positive side of the last commandment. It's the remedy for covetous desire. Contentment means wanting what God wants for us rather than what we want for us. Our deepest satisfaction can only come from God. Oh, get this, not from a change in your circumstance. C.S. Lewis once said, God cannot give us peace and happiness apart from himself. Why? Well, because it's not there. There is no such thing. So Philippians 4.13 may be one of the most quoted verses in the Bible. And may I submit gently, perhaps the most misused as well. Well, check it out. Many of us know it. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And sometimes the scriptures used like a formula which allows us to do whatever we want to do. But would you observe this passage has nothing to do about winning at sports or promoting a positive mental attitude or some self-centered, name-it-claim-it theology. Here's the context. You can see it. I can be content in whatever circumstance I'm in because of the strengthening work of Jesus Christ in my life. Now, incidentally, the second half of Hebrews thirteen five is also a favorite verse for many of us, but it's often quoted out of context. Oh, it's a wonderful promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's not only quoted out of context. Many of us don't even quote the rest of the verse. This is just part of the verse. Notice, in context, this promise is also connected to contentment. Well, look at it. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. And you're like, I don't know how to be content. I have so many. I don't know how to do this. Ah, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. See, once you see the beauty of Jesus and you allow him to be your full satisfaction, knowing that he will never leave you nor forsake you, there's nothing more you need. And let me pull these two passages together and say it something like this. Because I have Christ and he has me and he will never leave me or abandon me, I can be content in all things because of the strength he gives me. Now, when I constantly covet what I don't have, I'm saying I'm not trusting in the power, the presence, and the provision of Christ. So listen, you can have everything you think you want, and if you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. Let me say that again. You can have everything you think you want. And if you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. And if you have Jesus, you have everything. Let me say it like this. Unless Jesus is enough, you will never have enough. And the reason many of us are discontent, many of us who claim the name of Jesus is because we don't really believe Jesus is enough. Beth remembers several conversations with her dad growing up, and they would, it would often go like this. She'd be out with friends or at school or somewhere in the community and would come back home and say to her dad, so-and-so is really rich. And Beth's dad would gently correct her and say something like this, no, honey, they may have money, but we are rich in Christ. See, the key to not coveting what others have is to be content with what you already have. Now, here are some ways that we can correct our coveting and we can grow in contentment. Number one, it's got to start here, guard your heart. Uh, Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Why is that so important? Because coveting starts in the heart. we got to guard our heart. And some of us need to have our, our desires reduced, not our possessions increased. F.B. Meyer said it like this, contentment consists not in adding more fuel, but in taking away some fire. Epicurus said, if you want to make a man happy, add not to his possessions, but take away from his desires. Number two, you might need to say this one out loud. You might, need not, you might even need to write it down. Admit that places, possessions, people, a person cannot, will not ultimately satisfy. Ecclesiastes 5.10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. At its heart, coveting is an attempt to improve upon God. Find your satisfaction in Jesus alone. So here's a practical suggestion. When contemplating the purchase of another possession, we're all faced with that, simply go through this process you could ask this question, is it a need or is it a greed? About 30 years ago, I heard Erwin Lutzer make a statement that I've never forgotten. It goes like this, the key to contentment is not having everything you want, but wanting everything you already have. Number three, give your way out of covetousness. Nothing cures greed like giving because coveting cannot live in a generous heart. Acts 20 says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Let's come back to the ways that you and I can correct our coveting and grow in contentment. I've mentioned three, guard your heart. Admit that places, possessions, and people won't satisfy. Number three, give your way out of covetousness. Here's the fourth, and it's the most important. Earnestly desire Jesus Christ and be saved. We need to redirect our desires to go after Jesus. Listen to what he said, Matthew 6, But seek first. Make him your passion him your desire seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well what things from the context it's clothing it's shelter it's food it's those things we chase after jesus say no chase after me and my kingdom and my righteousness and i'll make sure you have all those other things so if you're not a christ follower yet what are you waiting for Repent of your coveting heart and receive Jesus as the full satisfaction for all your sins. Paul Harvey used to tell the story about how Eskimos would kill wolves. They would start by coating a knife blade with animal blood and then they'd allow it to freeze. And then the hunter would allow another layer of blood and and another until the blood was completely concealed by frozen blood. Next, the hunter would fix his knife in the ground with the blade up, and when the wolf discovered the bait, he would lick it, tasting the fresh, frozen blood. Well, that would make him lick faster and more vigorously until the razor-sharp edge of the knife sliced into his tongue. And in his craving for blood, the wolf would not realize his thirst was being satisfied by his own warm blood until the dawn found him dead in the snow. Question. Are you ready to kill coveting before it kills you? Repent of your sin. Receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Don't become a servant to every advertisement you see. Surrender to Christ right now. You could pray a prayer like this. God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I've been chasing that which won't satisfy. I admit that I have a coveting heart. But Lord, I repent from how I've been living. I turn from how I've been serving myself and only thinking of myself. Thank you, Jesus, that you died on the cross as full payment for my sins, your blood satisfying the Father's holy and righteous wrath. And so I believe, Jesus, that you died in my place and that you rose again from the dead. And not only do I believe, I now receive you. Come into my life. Save me. Give me a new heart, new passions, new direction, new purpose. Forgive me for my sins. I will need to be born again. And I ask you now to change me from the inside out that I might follow you faithfully the rest of my life and help others follow you faithfully as well. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you prayed that prayer today, I'd love to chat with you after the service. Uh, you're dismissed.